0: You're listening to the 3rd Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey there podcast listeners, this is Randy Bolander on the 3rd Cup of Coffee podcast and I say unto you, Wakey, wakey. It's time to get up. It's time to start moving. It's time to shake off the spirit of quarantine that causes you to slumber late into the day because you stayed up way too late the night before because you had nothing to do when you got up today. And you're in this weird loop. Come on, let's shake out of it. You know, I'm wondering what the long-term effects are of uh, extended time locked in with your family. You know, you wonder about that? Like, what, what are the characteristics? What's going to happen? Because we've all done this for a while. Uh, for one thing, Netflix is going to have to come up with a lot more content because everybody's watched everything. And so that's kind of done. But also in ourselves, what are the characteristics that will have changed? What will mark the people who have lived through this so that 100 years from now, when they look up the great quarantine of 2020 on Wikipedia... It will describe the people who came out of this and what they were like, and what will they call us? What will they call the? Uh, what will the post COVID nineteen generations call us? You know, we've named every other generation, every other generation segment, or boomers, and uh, then there were Gen Xers. There were, I think, fourteen Gen Xers. I was one of those, but there weren't very many of us. Uh, then millennials, lots of millennials. I, I don't know if there's lots of them. They're very, very verbal about being millennials. Could be millennials are like vegetarians or people who do CrossFit. You you never have to wonder if they're a millennial. They they want, want you to know. Um, then there's Gen Z. But what are they going to call the group of people collectively who went through this? I think I propose the name Zoomers. I think they're going to call us Zoomers because most of us have spent way too much time in Zoom meetings in the past couple of weeks. And everybody has gotten in. Your great Aunt Linda, who's in her 90s, is an expert on Zoom. She's showing you how to switch from gallery view to, you know, speaker view. Everybody is in on it. So who knows? They'll call us something, I'm sure, probably call us a lot of things before it's over. Uh, I have been flipping through the news and seeing all these protests. And uh, without choosing sides about opening or closing or, or, or whatever, let me just say, if you are bent to protest, and I really think there are some people who are bent to protest no matter what the issue, and then there are others who would not protest uh, at any cost. But, you know, the, the people who run to the protest quickly, who are who get there and make the sign and say, what are we protesting, once they get there. If you're one of those folks, if you're going to make a sign, let me just tell you, you need a content editor and spell check, okay? Because I'm flipping through some of these articles about these protests I saw a sign yesterday, a woman, I don't remember the entire sign, but the beginning of it said, we the people of Pennsylvania. And she had misspelled Pennsylvania and people. Okay, there's five words there so far, we the people of Pennsylvania. And she's only three for five in spelling. I'm sorry, you should be able to name and spell your own state. And you should be able to spell the word people. I saw another picture of a young woman standing in a Graduation gown, and she was very angry. You could just tell it. And her sign said, Coronavirus ruined my graduation. And I thought, you know, that's not going to age well, lady. You know, when you're 20 years down the road, and National Geographic Channel is presenting a documentary about the people who lived in this era, and your sign is going to pop up, and you're protesting the thing that has killed thousands of people because you missed your graduation ceremony. Um, That's not going to age well. So if you're going to protest, get your spelling right and uh, think a little bit about what you're saying in context of what you are saying. This is not tyranny by world standards, okay? This is uncomfortable. It's hard. You may even say it's wrong. It's not tyranny. And if you must protest... Make it convenient and pleasant for yourself. This is what I'm doing because I'm protesting as well. I think we should open up, but this is my protest. I am protesting this lock-in by eating ice cream every night until freedom rings in this nation. That's what I'm doing. That's, I'm faithful to it. I am very, very faithful to it. Moving on from such frivolous matters, on today's podcast, going to talk a little bit about friendship with Jesus. What does it look like right now? And where is it leading us? In light of the world that we live in and all that has changed in the past couple of months, what does friendship with Jesus and serving him look like? Now, of course, it's discipleship, which is rooted in discipline. But it's more than just a discipline. Friendship with Jesus is a supernatural thing. It's not an affinity or a transaction-based relationship. You are not his fix-it project, although he has a lot of work to do on you and me. He sees innate value in us that we do not see in ourselves, and he wills that we would be reborn, not just rebuilt, okay? We're not just a project. And friendship and the call that he puts on our life are so closely connected, okay? The call of Jesus is not just, come follow me. I mean, that's a part of it. You know, there's a story in Matthew 4, where Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, a Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net. there fishing, and Jesus says, Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. That's how the uh, ESV says it. I'll send you out to fish for people. The very next verse says, And at once they left their nets and followed him. (laughs) I love that. It's like, you know what? When you're cleaning fishing nets, almost anything sounds better. So they take off. How much understanding did they have at that point of what Jesus was calling them to do? I would say almost zero. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, I don't think they understood hardly any of what he was asking them to do. All they knew was the tug of the heart that caused them to drop everything, that they were making what they felt was a great sacrifice because they were going to learn to fish for men. I can even visualize them walking behind him and whispering to one another, what does fish for men mean? I can see Peter saying, well, I'll ask him, and the other saying, no, 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 don't ask him. Let's just see how this turns out. Jesus' call to those who would be his friends is so much bigger than come follow me. It is the how and the why of following him. And the disciples struggled, and so do we, because we don't like to be told how to do anything. Uh, You know, we think sincerity is the only thing that matters, but sincerity is only effective when it is paired with obedience. So when he says, come follow me, there's a right way to do this. Jesus called people from their dreary lives, but what did he call them to? What were his instructions for everything he asked them to give up? Leave your nets, leave your way of thinking, leave everything behind you and come follow me. What was he asking them to do? You know, at one point he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. But what did he say before that? This is what led up to that in John 15:12 through 14. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. If you are my friends, you are my friends if you do what I have commanded. So while the idea of come follow me is the initial question, the idea of friendship with God is tied to partnering with him or more properly obedience to him. And therein lies the rub with friendship with God. One of you is in charge and you are not it. Not only are you not it, he presses the issue and says, you're not even second. Who is second? Everybody else this isn't just counterculture or unpopular. This is counter-human logic. Jesus knew that we would struggle with this idea of putting others first for the rest of our lives. It's why I said in Matthew 23, 11, and 12, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted." As friends of Jesus, it is our duty and our honor to extravagantly serve others. And I don't mean a little, I mean a lot, over the top. Here's the difficulty for those who love Jesus, is they don't often understand that they were called to serve those who aren't quite there yet. They are called to serve those who might not love Jesus and who might not return the favor. And this is going to be a huge deal in coming months. Mark my words, people are coming looking for truth. With the pressure building on daily life, people are going to be wide open for hope, and they're going to be searching. They will be true seekers. You know, we really haven't seen a generation of true seekers, probably since the 60s or the 70s of the Jesus people. All of the seeker sensitivity training that we all went through as we rebuilt churches as seeker-sensitive churches weren't even really geared for true seekers. They were geared for consumers. And a lot of good happened in those. But what happens when a generation emerges from this train wreck that we're in right now, and they're true seekers, they're true spiritual explorers. What do we have to give them? And how do we embrace them? Many years ago, I had one of the most significant dreams of my life, and I may have shared this before, but I was standing at the bottom of a canyon or a quarry that was open on one end, and it was still and it was quiet there. It was protected. It was like a sanctuary. All around the top of the three sides of the quarry, I saw Native Americans in full regalia. I mean, in in their full dress, the headdresses, everything you think of when you think of Native Americans in all their glory. They're all standing around the top of this thing. And on the open end of the canyon, there came a wagon train of settlers riding horses with wagons pulled by oxen. Some of them were walking, many of them were families. And in the dream, I knew that this had the potential to be a good thing because the natives knew how to live in this land. They could teach the settlers a lot. And the settlers brought a lot of things with them that would make life easier for the natives if they could figure out a way to embrace them. The tension lie in how these settlers were going to be received. And as I stood there thinking all of this, one by one the natives started to scream and began to jump off the cliff to their own death. I can still hear the sound in the dream of the bodies hitting rock from a hundred foot jump. And the thought that came to me in the dream was they would rather destroy themselves than serve and embrace those that are coming. Now, as we emerge from this quarantine, others are going to come. And I realize that I vastly oversimplified the real uh, struggle of Native Americans as settlers coming in. I'm not saying it was that simple by any means, but for the reason of allegory. That's, that's what the dream meant to me. As we emerge from this quarantine, though, others are going to come. They're going to be radically different and desperately need the help of those who have walked this path before. But they're going to be so different and so out of the norm that some of us will be so offended we will be tempted to walk away from the faith rather than to embrace those that are coming looking for it. If we go into self-preservation mode, we're done. The mode that the Lord would ask us to engage is in hospitality mode. Whenever people start talking about serving one another, invariably, somewhere someone gets bent out of shape at the fear of the discomfort of serving someone, and they say, Well, just who are we serving? Are we serving man or are we serving God? That is a religious perspective that fails to take scripture into account. It was a religious person who was getting to that point in Matthew 22 verse 36 to 40, they say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What is the call of God in your life? To honor God and to serve others. Those two goals are nowhere near in competing with one another. To love God is to honor people, and to love people is to honor God. There's no dichotomy. So the big question is how and why does an all-powerful God who can do anything he wants orchestrate a world where we serve others? Why would he choose to accomplish his purposes that way? Let me give you um, just real five super quick reasons here because serving others blesses the heart of God. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes a scene at the end of the age, and he thanks people who have ministered to him. And the people seem puzzled because they're really not sure who he's talking about. Verse 37 to 40, he says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty, and gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? Or go to visit you. And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The church has got to understand that as we serve others around us, we do it unto Jesus himself. We don't even serve the person, we serve the king. I came to Jesus as a child. I uh, grew up in the church, went to Bible college, was in full time ministry role. When I Had a bit of a second conversion of sorts. I had a grip on the idea of honoring God, but I had what I jokingly call my second conversion to servanthood. And really, it was a part of the maturing process. None of us are what God is fully making us into at 20 or even 30 or 40. But this is how it started Kelsey and I were on vacation. We were headed to church on a Sunday morning because that's what pastors do on vacation. And uh, we stopped on the way to the church we were going to because there was a flood of people that were crossing the road. We just couldn't, it was like, you know, those scenes from New Zealand when there's a thousand sheep crossing the road and you're stuck. It was like that, but, you know, delete sheep, add people. And they were all parking in a dirt parking lot on one side of the road and walking across, and uh, they were all shorts, all sorts, shapes, and sizes of people. There was a safety guard who was wearing a big foam cowboy hat and waving one of those big foam fingers to get them across the road, And along with him were two guys with modified backpacks that held huge Cambro coffee containers strapped to their backs. And as people crossed the road, they were filling coffee cups and handing them out. And I'm irritated because I'm trying to go to church. And I realized these people were going to a church. And why not check this out? So we parked in the dirt lot. We followed the crowd. We walked in, find a small foyer, crammed in the corner of the foyer with these huge racks of yellow bags and a sign all the bags are full of groceries. The sign said, if you or your neighbor or your friend need groceries, take a bag. And people were grabbing empty yellow bags on the way out, filling them during the week, returning them to the grocery racks at the church on Sunday. Some people crossing the road were bringing in groceries, others were taking them home. And Kelsey was so moved at the simplicity of this that she just absolutely tears up. Now, I'm more practical. And I look at it and I blurt out, man, are they going to get ripped off. And my wife looked at me and said, Why do you care? So they lose a few bags of groceries a week, but 20 or 30 bags get put in the hands of hungry people in the name of Jesus. And it dawned on me, This looks a little like chaos to me, but Jesus loves this. We're doing this to the least of these, and he it's the same as doing it unto Him. Serving can look messy and even inefficient. But only if you're measuring it by what it does for people. What about what it does for the heart of God? Serving others blesses God's heart. Second thing it does, serving others shows them Jesus. If the church is to point other people to Jesus, I think we need to think practically how we do that. Yes, we worship and people are drawn to that. We preach and that affects some people, but but then what? There's got to be more than that. The power to do that does not lie solely in the pulpit or in the building. It is largely invested in the activity of the people who make up the church every day and the people who live in all sorts of different situations. One way to do that is to serve others knowing that our deeds point them to Christ. Our deeds point them to Christ when they never will hear a sermon or never hear a song. Matthew five fourteen to 16 is not about preachers. It says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do you light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, yet let your light shine before others, that they may see your good preaching. No, no, no. They would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our actions show people Jesus in a way that is hard for them to deny. They can argue with preaching. They can say, I don't like that song. It's hard to argue with someone who is serving you. Years ago, we were doing an outreach to um, these rave community, basically. These kids would go do these raves, and they'd, they'd be out all night and As they would leave them, you know, it's wee hours of the morning, and it's an art festival, so there's all kinds of craziness going on. And to fit in, we built a huge art sculpture that we called En Gedi. En Gedi depicted a huge boulder with a spring flowing out from the top. Now, the name refers to an actual place in the Middle East. It's the oasis in the desert where David hid from Saul. It's also considered the headwaters of the River of God in Ezekiel. An our in featured a beautiful angel on top, bowing down before this golden throne and then water. It was pretty ornate. It was the biggest honking paper mache sculpture you've ever seen in your life. Took a U-Haul truck. So as we're there by our sculpture with worship music playing, we're handing out water. And these kids are coming back and, you know, they've been drugged up all night or drinking and they're very thirsty. And a young guy wandered into our camp. We give him some water. And he found himself resting there in the shade, trying to build up the strength for the final walk back home. And after hearing the explanation of our artwork and what En was, he asked me, well, who sits on the throne? I told him, God sits on the throne. He looked up at the throne and he looked at me and he kind of grinned and he said, I don't see him. I asked him, where did you get the bottle of water? For a minute, he stood there staring at the throne and at the bottle in his hand that someone had just given him. And he finally looked up at the throne and took a swig of water and said, Thanks, God. Now, what happened with that guy? I don't know. But for a moment, he had the understanding that somebody was serving him and that God was the motivation. That may have been the only sermon that kid heard for a long time. When we serve, we show other people Jesus. Third reason that we serve is that God is making divine appointments for you to keep. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you had kids in school, you know that you work hard preparing things so that when they go out to go to school, everything goes smoothly, right? You prepare the lunch. You make sure the homework is put together, the backpack sack. I mean, your older kids do it on their own, but the younger kids, you have, to, you have to set them up for success. Jesus sets us up for success by making appointments in the divine calendar for us to serve people. And we are so paranoid about falling into error and saying that our good works saved us that we fail to understand our good works aren't even for us. They are for those who don't know Jesus. There are divine appointments for you the day that America is open for business, or however you want to term it, for you to serve people. The Lord already has people that He's going to bring across your path that you can serve had a friend who recently came upon a car wreck. It was a bad wreck. People were hurt terribly. Had our friend been 30 seconds ahead in his trip, the accident would have happened behind him. He would have never seen it. If he'd have been 30 seconds behind in his trip, someone else would have been the first to the site. But he wasn't. He was right on time, he was right there. The Lord knew that was going to happen before it was ever a possibility. And in that divine appointment, he stepped in. They were able to pray for people, to care for people, until the ambulance showed up. The Lord is setting divine appointments for you. They're not all that dramatic, but they're all that important. Fourth thing about serving is serving helps us get better. You don't have to be perfect to serve. You just have to try. And the beauty of it is the trying actually improves who you are. And you and I have a lot of work to do on ourselves, and serving helps that. I always cringe when people say that uh, they describe their life of sin for 20 or 30 years, then they came to Jesus, and Jesus totally changed my life. I'm thinking, well, no. I mean, he changed your heart, and he made me a big difference in your appetite for sin and your heart for people, but you are largely a redeemed person of you with many of the same problems. Jesus is changing your life. And one way he works to change your life is in your service to others. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about the renewing of our mind, the changing the way that we think. We all have our issues, we all have our struggles, and we're all a little screwed up. But when we serve, the Lord does something in our mind towards our perspective to other people and towards him. Our hearts are kept soft and uh, a transformation begins to take place. We serve others because it helps us get a little better. When we lift our eyes from our own issues, we naturally grow up a little bit, and it begins to break the power of selfishness off of our lives. When we serve, we get a little better. Finally, he calls us to serve because serving is available to everybody. When we think of ministry— We are grossly confused about what is qualifications, who is qualified and who is not. There are a few specialized areas where, you're right, a degree would be helpful. But there are a million roles that are far more accessible and will connect with more people than the more specialized roles. And because Jesus is in control, serving at the most menial task is just as effective as serving at the most highly trained level. I want you to start asking right now, what can I do for my neighbors in this season, even if I do it poorly? Bad cookies delivered to a front door are better than no cookies, promise. Pulling their trash bins up to their driveway to serve them, even if you put the recycling bin on the wrong side, it's better than nothing. If you can figure out a way to serve somebody, do it. The act will make up for the fact that you might not do it perfectly. And it doesn't take a master's in divinity. It takes a master's of humility. In this season, let's go get one. The lessons are free. We are on the brink of something amazing and we can serve our way into friendship with people and discipleship with God. Have a great day. I'll talk to you next week on The Third Cup of Coffee lifting any burdens off our shoulders if i